Good evening all to the weekly huddle. My name is Anup Agrawal. I am an interventional cardiologist at Care Hospital Hyderabad. Uh, most of the attendees here for today, uh, I know them personally and they have joined us previously as well. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the session today, uh, Dr. Praneet Polamari. He is also a cardiologist at Care Hospital Banjara Hills itself. So the huddle is an audience level interaction session where we discuss a variety of things, mostly focused around healthcare. We typically pick up a topic or a clinical case and we try to restrict our discussion around particularly that topic. The basic premise of the huddle is to bring our casual hallway discussion to a more organized platform like this one and share our ideas together. Uh, while we do want to talk about science, uh, the huddle particularly aims to bring out the practice patterns that we have and understand the rationale of what makes us take a particular decision because uh, we recognize that a uh, lot of us, we have our own thought process based upon the local factors, based upon practical scenarios, and also taking into account the science which is available. The huddle is hosted every week on Wednesdays, like today at 7.30 p.m. And this is our 24th session for which our topic is antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis. Uh, typically to facilitate the discussion like this one, we do invite a uh, uh, few of our colleagues. Today I have, I have invited uh, Dr. Shinivas, who is, uh, uh, who practices dentistry at uh, Air Hospital, Banjara Hills. Uh, and uh, we may be joined with a few internal medicine physicians down the road, we'll see. Uh, the huddle is not a speaker and audience model, rather an audience level interaction, which means that any of the attendees who have to share their thoughts, they can simply unmute yourself and share their thoughts, or they can raise their hands and I will unmute you and you can share your hands. As a courtesy, you should wait for others to finish uh, their thoughts before you un unmute yourself. So with that, uh, I will get started. Typically, I have a clinical case just to get things started with the discussion. I asked Praneet to put their input, to put his input, and then we open it up for an audience level discussion. So Praneet, this is a clinical case. And again, we try to keep all the clinical cases um, uh, which we saw practically so that you know we don't talk about what ails. We talk about what happens on the ground. So Praneet, this is a 48-year-old female I have been following her for the past two years. She, uh, I inherited her two years ago from one of the cardiologists. She has a history of mitral valve prolapse with the moderate to severe mitral regurgitation on echocardiogram. Few echoes shows moderate, few echoes shows severe. She's totally asymptomatic. Her LV dimensions are okay and her LV ejection fraction is more than 60%. She is otherwise uh, functional class one and does not report any symptoms. She's also hypothyroid for which she takes thyroid supplementation and she's doing fine with that. Very recently, she started having problem with one of wisdom tooth and uh, she seeks tooth extraction for that. Somebody told her that because you have so-called valve disease or heart disease, you need to take some antibiotics as a prophylaxis before you go for tooth extraction. So here is a clinical scenario for you, Praneet. 48-year-old female, mitral valve prolapse. Degree of regurgitation is somewhere between moderate to severe, asymptomatic, otherwise all right. Needs to go for tooth extraction. What is your recommendation for antibiotic prophylaxis for this patient? Uh, 
Yeah. So I would uh, ask them to give injection ceftriaxone one gram IV whenever before the procedure and uh, go ahead for uh, surgery. Uh, that would be my recommendation and uh, followed by uh, uh, what do you call it? one more dose of uh, same dose, uh, one gram of uh, ceftriaxone IV uh, six hours after the that would be my recommendation as an endocarditis prophylaxis for this patient. Okay, so Pranit, I'm going to follow up on this and then we'll open it for discussion. So you, first of all, you do want to give her prophylaxis, right? Okay, I'm going to keep you unmuted, Pranit, for the time being because I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, so give us your rationale. Why do you want to give antibiotic prophylaxis to this patient? is having a regurgitant uh, valve lesion which is moderate to severe so because there is severe regurgitation a pre-existing uh, valvular heart disease um, is a uh, indication to or it's a presupposing condition to have an endocarditis that is where i would recommend to give uh, endocarditis prophylaxis dental procedure which involves a lot of bacteremia uh, uh, so, um, combining both together, uh, I would prefer to give endocarditis prophylaxis. Okay, the follow-up question there is, uh, you also chose to give post-exposure prophylaxis. Is the rationale the same for post-exposure or something else? Uh, you also chose to give her post-exposure prophylaxis. You told that you will give another dose after six hours. Yeah. So is the rationale for post-exposure the same or different? Uh, same. You're trying to be a bit cautious. Okay. That is where I am giving it uh, again. And did you say the dose as well? You said one gram, right? Yeah, one gram IV ceftriaxone. Okay. The third question is why injectable? Why not oral? Just trying to understand why you made that decision. When you are hitting it, hitting hit it hard. Uh, try to uh, cover much, uh, that comfort of uh, uh, knowing that uh, injectable works better than oral. And uh, endocarditis is something which I fear, so I I am trying to be more cautious here. Okay, now the last question: dental extraction, tooth extraction is a outpatient procedure. If you uh, instruct the patient or the dentist to say that you are gonna need another antibiotic after six hours, particularly injectable, the patient needs to be in the hospital. Your rationale of giving IV antibiotic, do you think it is worth spending another six hours in the hospital? You can justify that, is what I'm trying to understand. So in this patient who has a severe, moderate to severe metal regurgitation, I would uh, to take that extra step in uh, being cautious, ideal approach, uh, because again, because there is and I would be uh, stretching forward, take that extra step. Perfect. Thanks, Pranit. I'm going to meet you, and uh, I'm going to ask few of my cardiology colleagues who are in the attendees here to get their thoughts, and then we'll go to Dr. Shrinivas, for whom this actual patient will come to. So let me actually uh, and 
whosoever is unmuted i'm just going to mute you sorry huh? so let me ask dr shrinivas dr shrinivas is my colleague cardiologist at care high tech uh, dr shrinivas you have a 48 year old female mitral valve prolapse moderate to severe mr asymptomatic needs tooth extraction uh, ie prophylaxis yes or no if yes which drug if no why not dr shrinivas yeah yes dr anup i agree with the pranit that uh, we can give it uh, before the procedure but since the duration of procedure is not going to last for maybe say more than half an hour and one hour that dose of ceftriaxone would still lack for a couple of hours so probably we don't need to give it uh, after six hours again perfect thank you sir uh let me ask one more uh, dr chandramukhi dr chandramukhi is a senior cardiologist at care banjara and she pretty much single handedly mans the non invasive lab dr chandramukhi you have a patient here 48 year old female mvp moderate to severe mr needs tooth extraction prophylaxis yes or no if yes which one uh, good evening yes i will give infective endocarditis prophylaxis to this patient as pranith has already mentioned we will give iv ceftriaxone and uh, as you were concerned like uh, for uh, post procedure prophylaxis the patient may need to stay back into the hospital for 6 hours so in such cases because already he is having mitral valve prolapse and severe mr moderate or severe mr which carries uh, high risk for infective endocarditis and as per our uh, indian setup again the risk increases so post procedure prophylaxis also i would like to give and in such patients i would uh, 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 like i would do the procedure in the morning first hours of our opd procedures and then so that it will be convenient for the patient to stay back 6 hours in the opd and get the iv prophylaxis post procedure or they can get the post procedure prophylaxis in the nearby clinic or a nearby nursing home thank you thank you so much ma'am uh, if i could uh, invite uh, dr sai vitter dr sai vitter i don't know if you are able to hear me or not i am going to unmute you sir if you could share your thoughts about this particular case how would you approach I would approach the same as uh, dr pranit polamuri would have done it a initial septraxone uh, 1 gram injection followed by another injection usually i may time it after 6 hours or 8 hours uh, that's what I would do, repeating the same dose after six hours, the post prophylaxis. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. So let me give you a two-minute background on this, maybe three minutes, and then we'll go to Dr. Uh, Srinivas to see what his thought is. So if we look at the infective endocarditis prophylaxis business in terms of what the recommendations are or what the societies would say, then we can kind of divide the world in what we were doing in 1990s, then what we were doing in early 2000s, and then what we were doing in the last, or what we are doing in the last decade. And truly speaking, if we talk about data-driven or evidence-based medicine, prophylaxis for infective endocarditis is a classic example of where we absolutely don't have any data, and we are most likely not going to get any data because of the kind of disease that we are dealing with, it will require a very large sample size and it's just going to be impossible. So in 1990s, or I would say before year 2000, there was a lot of this thought process that infective endocarditis is bad and we should hit them with antibiotics so that uh, you prevent infective endocarditis. In fact, I remember there were classification of what kind of cardiac pathology you have 
into low, intermediate, and high-risk pathologies, so-called. And then every single non-cardiac procedure, you name it, like skin incision and drainage, or cystoscopy, or Foley catheterization, for that matter, uh, vaginal deliveries with um, uh, C-section or not, and then uh, bronchoscopy, endoscopy, biopsies, colonoscopies, and the host of dental procedures, they all were again classified into their risk of bacteremia versus high or low. And then there was this complex algorithm in terms of trying to figure out which patient would get or not. And what ended up happening was most of the patient the, uh, at the side of caution, we would give antibiotics. Over the period of time, there was some data looking at the risk of bacteremia with every procedure. And time since then, what we have observed is that transient bacterial translocation happens far more commonly with our daily activity, like brushing your teeth, like uh, if somebody has a diarrhea or something of that sort, uh, that uh, these transient bacterial translocation are far more frequent than what we think. And to a certain degree, their level of bacteremia matches or even increases or even is higher compared to some of the procedures for which we are giving endocarditis prophylaxis. And then the third rationale was that, okay, we are still giving endocarditis prophylaxis, but is it actually working or not? So we really did not have any of these clue in terms of whether it is justified, in terms of is it actually needed? And even if it is needed, by us giving the therapy, are we making any difference? Are the endocarditis risks going down? And uh, we really have no idea. So I remember when early on I, I joined uh, training at that time, there was this big uh, debate um, because uh, the newer guidelines at that time came, I would think maybe late 2000s or early 2010. I can't remember the exact year when this new guideline came, which pretty much uh, discounted all the procedures, everything that we were doing in 1990s. And then towards my end of training, maybe in 2015, 16, a new set of guidelines came, which pretty much said, don't give endocarditis prophylaxis. Like literally, I remember uh, UK guidelines that clearly say, don't give endocarditis prophylaxis, not because it doesn't work, but because we just don't know. And the risks of giving blanket antibiotic therapy probably exceeds that of the benefit that we may get. So the new thought process that came was rather than identifying which patient has the highest risk of getting infective endocarditis, which was the thought process in the last 20, 30 years, the new thought process was forget about which patient has the highest risk of getting infective endocarditis. Let us identify which patient will be hurt the most if they get infective endocarditis. So which patient, if they get IE, it becomes a big disaster. Like for instance, a heart transplant patient. So heart transplant patient, people say that you shouldn't get endocarditis. So those patients, you can give antibiotics, even if it means you are over-treating it, because those patients, you don't want to get a bad disease in form of endocarditis or whatnot. So rather than identifying cardiac pathologies, which are high risk to cause IE, we started, the thought process changed where we started saying that, okay, let's identify those patients on whom having an IE is going to have a far more devastating consequence than, than the chances of having IE. And there, we started prescribing antibiotics and all this. So I'm just giving you an overall journey of what happened in the last three decades 
where we started with giving prophylaxis to everyone to most recent where UK guidelines say that don't give it to anybody. And rather, if you have to give it to somebody, then give it to somebody whom you think IE is going to cause more damage than other situation. So not just pathology based, but a patient level based. So that was the overall thought process going by the guidelines. This patient in the current era will not fit for an antibiotic therapy. But the whole idea why we discuss these things, particularly in meetings like this, is because we just don't want to go by the guideline. We want to understand what is at the ground and we want to make decisions based upon what we think is clinically right rather than just what guidelines or societies say. So that was my background. And then maybe we can elaborate this uh, over the discussion if the questions come. But let me uh, talk to Dr. Srinivas. Dr. Srinivas is our chief dentist at uh, Care Banjara. Sir, this patient comes to you for tooth extraction, and we are not yes. talking about perioperative antibiotics. That is different. Perioperative antibiotics we give even for a patient who comes for cellulitis drainage. We are talking yes, about yes. antibiotics for IE prophylaxis. Dental tooth extraction, MVP, moderate to severe MR. Let's say if this patient would have come to you first and not to me, would you have given IE prophylaxis? If yes, which drug? Dr. Srinivas. Yep. Good evening, everybody. See, basically, we are treating a lot of cardiac cases, so we stick on to this protocol of giving infective endocarditis prophylaxis, selecting the patient. In dentistry, basically, we, after 2007, American Heart Association guidelines, as you, as Dr. Anub said, this is, this is not required. The transient bacteremia will be there through daily activities, and the bacteremia will be, will be for a longer period. I agree for that. But there are two different schools of thoughts, one, one set of people giving and one set of people not giving. And I, my opinion or I rate my, um, um, I grade my patients like mild, moderate, severe procedure. According to the procedure, I decide. If I enter the tissues, that means I use a scalpel or I incise uh, like uh, molar extraction, a lot of guttering of bone is there and a lot of time we spend with the patient uh, doing procedures, manipulation of the oral tissues, then definitely uh, I do take any cardiology patient. I take uh, opinion from the, or opinion or clearance from the treating cardiologist. Then all these years we were treating with prophylactic antibiotics only. Yes, post-procedure, definitely. Sometimes we switch over to uh, oral drugs uh, uh, immediately after six or eight hours. But pre-procedure, we are doing it. Uh, if it is a surgical case, if it is a non-surgical case, yes, we can put the patient on coverage of antibiotics. Like in dental procedures, what we do as a department protocol is we start all the patients with antibiotic coverage 24 hours before or stat dose of one gram. So I prefer that way. And all this, believe me, since 2003, I was working in care. And uh, to my knowledge, there was not even a single case who landed up into endocarditis due to dental procedure, which is which is untreated or unrecognized will be fatal. Uh, so I believe in this thought of giving uh, prophylactic antibiotics. And uh, uh, as said, uh, there are animal, animal studies, they indicate definitely uh, the use of uh, antimicrobial uh, prophylaxis, which are really effective. But some human studies, as I told, there are two different schools of thoughts. 
uh, I think I follow this. I told you what I follow, followed all these years. Is there anything else I can? No, sir. We'll we'll keep we'll keep coming back to you as yes. uh, as and when question comes. Uh, let me ask uh, some other people's thought. And again, as I said, that this is this is more of a practice-based approach rather than guidelines. Because if you go by the guidelines, I will tell you. Let me just go through what currently is uh, written on paper. So the current guidelines would suggest that you do infective endocarditis prophylaxis when both the conditions are met. And two conditions are condition number one, where the cardiac pathology is very high risk, and condition number two, where the non-cardiac procedure that you are doing carries a very high risk of bacteremia. So the number two is very easy. The number two is essentially just dental procedures that require gingival manipulation. That makes it very easy. So your routine cleaning does not require antibiotic prophylaxis. On the other hand, if you are doing some root canal treatment, if you are doing uh, dental extraction and all these, then that comes as a high risk. So that part they have taken care of. They don't mention any other procedure as high risk of bacteremia, none. Then about the cardiac pathology, they have three or four criteria which are easy to remember. If you have a bioprosthetic valve, if you have a prosthetic valve, bio or mechanical, you are classified as high risk. If you had infective endocarditis before, you classify as high risk. If you had a valve repair, either with uh, endoplasty ring or whatnot, you are classified as, uh, as uh, high risk. Cardiac transplant patient with any kind of valvulopathy classifies as high risk. Congenital heart disease, which is either unrepaired cyanotic or repaired but has got a residual shunt, that classified as high, uh, high risk. So these are pretty much all the criteria that the most recent guidelines would suggest. So MVP is out, native valve disease is out, ASD, BSD is out. All these, all these situations which earlier were so-called classified as intermediate risk, they're all out. Uh, so very restrictive guidelines per se currently, and, and most of the cardiologists whom I uh, interact with they would say that they don't follow this restriction. They actually want, they actually prescribe antibiotics in a more generic population than this. So that is over the guideline. Let me ask some of the other audience in terms of what their thought is. Uh, Dr. Ali, Dr. Muhammad Ali, I'm unmuting you. I will ask you about this particular case and then I will ask you other situation. So Dr. Ali, 48 year old lady, mitral valve prolapse, moderate to severe MR, Tooth extraction, would you give IE prophylaxis, yes or no? And if yes, what? Dr. Ali, your thoughts? Sorry, we can't hear you. Dr. Ali, we are not able to hear you. Okay, we'll get back to you. Uh, let me get uh, Dr. Prathvi's thought. Dr. Prathvi, I'm I'm unmuting you. If you could share your thoughts about what you would do. Sir, hi, hi, hello, hello, sir. Good evening, sir. So I'd also uh, ask them to get an injection of ceftriaxone, sir. Uh, IV one gram, uh, 30 minutes before procedure, sir. But uh, uh, I usually don't give post-exposure prophylaxis, sir. 
Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Prithvi. Uh, let me ask uh, Dr. Sahithi. I don't know. Dr. Sahithi, are you able to hear me? If you are, if you could just share your thoughts about this particular case. Dr. Sahithi, we are not able to hear you. Unfortunately, we can't hear you, Dr. Saithi. Okay, we'll get back to you. Uh, let me ask uh, someone else. Uh, Dr. Shankar, I'm I'm unmuting you. If you could share your thoughts about this particular case, and then I'll give you one more case scenario. Dr. Shankar. Since a long time, uh, earlier uh, we used to give uh, prophylaxis for the mitral prolapse, even ASD, VSD, and, uh, but uh, of late, uh, the guidelines have been changed. Uh, recently, even uh, this mitral prolapse also is not included in the infective endocardial prophylaxis, but clinically, with our experience, uh, I have seen uh, cases uh, uh, with the infective endocarditis, uh, patients of uh, mitral valve prolapse. I have been following a, a family of mitral valve prolapse syndrome. Uh, one of them, uh, he was, uh, uh, he had a fever for more than three weeks. So we investigated. Now, I know that he is a case of uh, uh, mitral valve prolapse. So we did the echo and we found uh, vegetations. So with this, uh, we burnt our fingers. So for any procedure, I like to give uh, prophylaxis, even for the mitral prolapse, uh, whether we, if it is not indicated, even if it is not indicated in the guidelines, but I prefer to give prophylaxis because I have seen cases uh, with infective endocarditis uh, in, in these congenital defects. So I give triaxone. Earlier we used to give ampicillin and we used to repeat after six hours, but now we are giving only septriaxone one gram one hour before the procedure. Uh, this is my way of uh, approaching uh, to the case of mitral prolapse with uh, moderate to severe MR. Dr. Shankar, I'm just going to ask you a few follow-up questions. So the, the rationale is uh, infective endocarditis exists. They are there. And I don't think that we will be able to completely negate it because there are so many activities that we do which causes bacteremia and some of which may translate into infective endocarditis. The question here is, uh, do we think that these antibiotics work? I mean, one idea is, can we do anything better? And we probably can't. I don't know of any other foolproof way of preventing infective endocarditis. It's something like, for this whole COVID thing, when we started giving all these uh, drugs, not because we thought these drugs work, but because we didn't have any other good alternative. So whatever we had, we were just giving. So do we think that these prophylaxis actually work or we are doing because we don't have a better alternative? What is your thoughts on it, Dr. Shankar? Actually, 
to be frank actually this prophylaxis may not be sufficient enough if the cardiac pathology is severe enough and but only to save our own skin because of the consumer forums and all we should follow we are compelled to follow the guidelines but uh, practically uh, this uh, only 1 gram ceftriaxone works in these cases i don't think because even after giving ceftriaxone also or ampicillin or clindamycin we we get cases of in, infected endocarditis also and where they need two to four weeks of antibiotic therapy this is my opinion because this may not be sufficient enough but uh, uh, era of this uh, um, consumer forums and all whether you have given prophylaxis or not somebody will question it that's why we are giving this prophylaxis but i in pra practically in my experience i have seen even after giving prophylaxis also we have seen cases of infective endocarditis thank you so much well, sir i yeah, will leave it to other other doctors yeah. opinion but uh, this yeah. is i have seen in my cl uh, clinical yeah. practice so this is a very important aspect that you said that if you don't give antibiotic or if you give antibiotic if patients develop infective endocarditis either ways uh, then in a situation where you have not given antibiotic you may be questioned for your decision and uh, that is difficult to defend on the other hand we giving antibiotic and patient developing let's say diarrhea or god forbid c diff or what not that is a that is a easier thing to defend on the on the on the forums as to speak or even in a clinical clinical seminar versus uh, when a patient gets an endocarditis uh, so that's that's an absolutely valid point i'm going to pause here for a minute i would invite if anybody has got any thoughts to share on this particular topic uh, if anybody has any thoughts they can unmute yourself uh, or i'll go forward with it i'll just pause for a few seconds for anybody to gather their thought okay uh pranith i'm unmuting you we'll just because, because this is a very direct scenario i'm just just going to ask you a few questions and then you tell me what you would do in these patients so sure. mitral prolapse same patient okay so now i am just making it up up till now i was telling you a real patient now i'm just making it up so the same patient let's say this patient is going for a bronchoscopy ie prophylaxis yes or no no bronchoscopy with a peribronchial biopsy using a endobronchoscopic ultrasound yes yes uh tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy yes endoscopy no uh ercp ercp no cystoscopy no this patient let's say if she was 34 year old going for a c c section she will get antibiotic for c section but we are particularly asking for infective endocarditis c section uh, yeah yes okay perfect hmm. uh i am going to ask you questions about uh, cardiac pathology particularly so okay. if this patient did not have mvp if this patient just had moderate to severe mr hmm. uh 
let's say because of LV dysfunction mm. and going for tooth extraction, would you give prophylaxis to this patient? Yes, I know. You would. So yeah. even for a even for a regular valvular pathology, you would give antibiotic prophylaxis to to this patient. Yes. Right. So, yes. So my my I fear endocarditis, as I said, and uh, most of our uh, uh, procedures or our uh, practice of uh, using sterilized things or G things, so to speak, and that uh, risk of uh, uh, infections, the sterilities and all those things are of a concern. So that is where you fear endocarditis or I fear endocarditis and I tend to overdo some things. Okay, so let me again make things very clear. So what Praneet is saying is that the equipment or stuff that we are using, we are not very confident of the kind of sterility that is required and point well taken. Uh, remember, infective endocarditis prophylaxis is given not because of the sterility of the procedure that is taken for granted. Infective endocarditis prophylaxis is given for the bacteremia that is induced by your procedure, regardless whether you are using uh, equipment with a completely sterile technique or equipment with is less. Com let, let me, Pranit, let me ask you a question, okay? And this is very pertinent. And hmm. I'm just discussing this because it is part of the discussion, not because I'm refuting what you are saying. Hmm. So let us say somebody gets a gingival manipulation. Hmm. And with a valvular disease, and this patient you think deserves uh, antibiotic prophylaxis because we all fear infective endocarditis. I fear infective endocarditis as much as you do. Okay. Now, let's say a patient is going for an angiogram. Mm -hmm. Here you are actually accessing vasculature directly. Correct. Right? On the yes. tooth part, there is a chance that you may be accessing vasculature. Correct. But in angiogram, you are directly entering the vasculature mm. using a reused equipment. Very true. In a scenario which is not sterile, which is not completely sterile, I would say. It's not, not non-sterile, it's not completely sterile. Mm. Right? Cath lab situation is not completely sterile. Correct. Right? Yes. Why are we not giving endocarditis prophylaxis or perioperative prophylaxis in diagnostic angiogram cases. You you understand where I'm coming from? Yes, 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 yes. I, I completely getting you what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> Probably we are thinking irrationally is, I, is what I think. I don't know. It didn't okay. occur to me that, yeah, that process is valid, but it didn't occur to me. Okay. Uh, Dr. Srinivas, your thoughts on this and just thoughts on anything that we are discussing. Yeah, Dr. Anup, did you say like mitral regurgitation, uh, secondary to annular dilatation or a fixed mitral valve? Uh, annular uh, dilatation. Uh, I don't think uh, infective endocardial prophylaxis is uh, required there. Mm. Uh, if the pathology is due to annular dilatation, then we don't need to give infective endocardial prophylaxis. Same is the case with... Uh, Mitral regurgitation, wherein the, it is because of uh, failure of cooptation because the posterior wall is not contracting well. Even that is not an indication for uh, infective endocarditis prophylaxis. Okay, so sir, be here for for a second, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yes. Believe me, I, right. would give, I would give prophylaxis for this patient as well, but I'm just 
for the sake of discussion. So, when you are talking about indication of infective of infective myocarditis prophylaxis, right. if a mitral valve prolapse patient with severe MR going for tooth extraction in the current scenario does not have a established indication for prophylaxis. Let's make it very right. clear. When right. we talk about indication, it does not exist. So we are talking about what we think we should be doing. Because if we go by the textbook, mitral valve prolapse in the current era does should not get antibiotic prophylaxis. Now, nobody is going to sue us for giving one because at the end of the day, it's, it's our clinical discussion. So my question to you is, severe MR with MVP, in your opinion, needs antibiotics versus annular dilatation severe MR does not need prophylaxis. Can you defend that? Why? What is special about MVP? Mm, see, probably MVP is a structurally damaged valve. Uh, even MVP actually it's not really indicated. Neither is Hocum. Even Hocum with MR is also removed absolutely, now. Absolutely. It's all removed. Yes. Yeah, it's all removed. Whereas in aromatic heart disease with a MR, it's a structurally damaged valve. Mm. Definitely there it's an indication because the valve is damaged per se. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that is the subset wherein there is, a, when there's a bacteremia, there's more seeding on a structurally damaged valve. Whereas okay. when there's annular dilatation wherein the valve is not co-opting, uh, the valve uh, is not really structurally damaged. It's only the annulus which is dilated. I don't think uh, there is a more chance of uh, seeding of bacteria there. Okay, okay. Uh, let us continue this thought. Dr. Chandramukhi, let me have you in. I'm going to unmute you. Can you just take on this discussion from here on? What is so inherently different about MVP that we need antibiotics and uh, we don't need antibiotics for other kind of valve, valve disease? Uh, in MVP, the valve is structurally abnormal and there is uh, some, like as Shinivas has already mentioned, it is structurally abnormal and there is some damage to the tissue and there is some accessory tissue. And on the top of that, there will be mitral regurgitation. So the risk will be more for infective endocarditis. In uh, functional ischemic MR, as we were discussing, so in that the valve is structurally normal and uh, because of the LV pathology or atrial pathology, there is a mitral regurgitation. So in this case, as compared to mitral valve prolapse, the because of the structurally normal valve, the risk of the endocarditis will be less uh, in the functional ischemic MR. So in these cases, uh, infective endocarditis prophylaxis is, according to me, it is not required in functional ischemic MR, but definitely even though mitral valve prolapse with severe MR, it is not indicated in the guidelines, but because of, of the all the discussion we have discussed because of the sterility issues and these things, we give prophylaxis in mitral valve prolapse and congenital heart disease. So, ma'am, I have a follow-up question on that, which I was discussing with Praneet. I'm going to ask you the same question. Yeah. A mitral valve prolapse patient with severe MR going for surgery, you are doing a pre-op angiogram on that patient. Yeah. Antibiotics or no antibiotics? Uh, we will give antibiotics in all the patients who are uh, taken up for diagnostic angiogram who are having a mitral valve prolapse or aortic stenosis or even in patients we do like uh, mitral stenosis patients who undergo pbmv or even in mitral stenosis patients who require angiogram i in my personal practice i will give infective endocarditis prophylaxis even when i am doing angiogram for these patients 
Okay, now we are talking something else. Thank you so much, ma'am. Let me ask uh, why Pranit has been doing this malpractice. Pranit, <laughs> how, how many times have you given antibiotics in these patients whom you do pre-op angiogram? So patients who have uh, valvular disease, mm. yes, uh, I have given them uh, uh, antibiotic. For angiogram? Yes. Okay. Because then I'm the only person who has not given antibiotics <laughs> in angiogram. Okay. Is it, is, it, is it the practice here? I don't know. Uh, anybody in the audience, please unmute yourself and uh, tell us what you do. Pre-op angiogram for valvular disease. Do you give antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis? Anyone, please unmute yourself. If you do angiogram in your routine life, the routine professional life, then I'm sure you have done preoperative angiogram for valvular disease. Do you give antibiotic prophylaxis? Datanu? Yes, sir. Yeah, for rheumatic heart disease, yes, definitely yes. Mm. Uh, for speed aortic valve, again, I think it is removed now. Mm. And uh, for MVP, there's a subset where they say MVP with a thickened mitral valve and a regurgitation, yes, you can give it. But if the valve is not in, uh, uh, if it is only mild MR, you can still uh, not give it. That's what the guidelines say. But again, uh, yes, for rheumatic heart disease, definitely I I'm giving for all my patients. Okay, okay. Because this is something that uh, I don't think I have ever done in, in angiogram scenario. Uh, let me ask uh, uh, some senior guy to see what is Dr. Dr. Sai Vittal, you have you have been practicing for far more number of years than what we have been. Just educate us. What do you do in your practice for angiogram pre-operative? Sir, uh, previously from coming from the fourth edition of Brown Wall to the 10th, the indications have been reducing year by year, edition by edition. That is the first thing. Actually, in the old editions, what was this has been continuously followed despite the new editions coming. And I think uh, we go from this prophylactically doing this uh, endocardial prophylaxis is better, especially when a regurgitation, metal valve collapse, regurgitation, we do it. And uh, actually, as you have said, uh, since ESC 15, there is no indication for these things. But still, we practice the whole practice, we continue doing it. And sir, do you do it for angiogram as well, or you do it only for the dental and other procedures? Not for not for angiogram, sir. So pre-operative mitral valve prolapse, you are not giving antibiotic for angiogram? No, sir. You are not. Okay, so I'm not the only one who is not doing. I feel a little bit better. Okay, all right. Uh, let Let me get uh, Dr. Shinivas here again. Dr. Shinivas, I'm going to ask you a few specific yeah. questions. No, uh, just uh, one thing. The reason yes. I give the antibiotic is uh, anyway the patient is going for a valve replacement. Mm. I'm more comfortable that he goes for a valve replacement without any possibility of infection. I don't want a prosthetic valve infection. So it's okay to give an antibiotic uh, rather than taking a chance of some remote possibility of an infection. Right, right, right. See, uh, again, I'm going to reiterate this whole thought process that are we all afraid of infective endocarditis? Absolutely, yes. Can any of these procedures cause infective endocarditis? Absolutely, yes. Are these procedures at 
higher risk of causing infective endocarditis than some of the routine procedures like brushing teeth. We don't know that. And do giving high dose antibiotics before and after this procedure reduce the risk of infective endocarditis compared to uh, those patients who don't receive these antibiotics? And that is also we don't know yet. So out of the four things that I told you, the first two, nobody is questioning that. We all fear and we think some of these procedures do induce endocarditis. But the other two, the answer is not yet very clear. In more and more that people have learned, that is why it probably took them 30 years to downgrade their recommendation rather than five, seven years, because most of the recommendation was based upon like a common sense or compromise rather than good data, because I don't think even they have good data about it. Uh, let me ask Dr. Uh, Srinivas Akula about uh, few particular things. Sir, I'm unmuting you. So, sir, these patients who come to you with cardiac problem, which I'm sure a lot of patients come to you because you are working in a center where uh, inherently there are a lot of cardiac patients. Yes. Uh, not particularly about the procedure. What do, is there something you guide them about their daily life as well to reduce infective endocarditis, like brushing their teeth or whatnot? Or that is all yeah. that is all hokum? Like, does it really work? No, no, no. Definitely, definitely. There are studies that maintaining very good oral hygiene definitely will reduce the risk of this. See, when definitely there are. Uh, um, like uh, studies which have done without prophylactic antibiotics also, but where prophylaxis is oral prophylaxis per se, like hygiene of uh, no gum disease, no periodontal disease or no abscess, anything, uh, then definitely we can take a chance, but not all cases. As I told, high risk cases, definitely we have to give because uh, mortality, morbidity, all these uh, things come into picture. And will be will be as as other doctors said, suing is also there nowadays. So and we don't want our patient to go into trouble. In India, over-the-counter antibiotics are also available. So what I feel is patient might have exposed to other antibiotics also. Some resistance change would have been there in them also. So it is always uh, better. I feel. Uh, and sir, how about? Uh teeth cleaning practices like usual brushing and whatnot. Patients with valvular heart disease, in your opinion, should they brush their teeth just like regular everybody else does? Or do you think they should be relying more on mouthwash with somewhat brushing to reduce translocation? What is your thought uh, process on that? No, no, no. See, mouthwash and all can be done, but regular brushing is important because Interdental crevices and all you can't remove with just rinsing or rinsing around with mouthwash and all. Definitely brushing is a must to maintain hygiene. The other things acts as an adjuvant, but but they are not the things to be followed up. Brushing twice in a day. Basically, uh, nighttime brushing is more important because salivary secretions are less. And you have to you have to be really careful in uh, retaining all the food uh, food debris in between uh, in between your teeth or in the pockets which have created already in existing uh, pathological diseases like pocket formation or uh, intraboni defects all those stuff. And how about dental flossing and valvular heart disease? Does flossing make uh, endocarditis more likely? Is there any any data to suggest that? Or your opinion? If if it is if it is properly done, you 
you can't you won't go and hit the crevice there in the circular epithelium what we call is you don't really go into the circular epithelium there is something called as junctional epithelium so nothing will nothing will nothing will cross this barrier so that time it's okay but overzealous for flossing definitely is not recommended perfect thank you so much sir uh, that was very appreciative uh Pranit, I'm going to get back to you again. Just few, just few additional discussions. Your your post-hour patient is going for a endoscopy, no biopsy. Yes. Prophylaxis or no prophylaxis. <laughs> yes. Why? You just told me ten minutes ago that endoscopy you don't give prophylaxis. You bioprosthetic valve. It's a 25 lakh valve. I don't want it to be infected. <laughs> but the question here is, by giving antibiotics, <laughs> you prevent the risk of endocarditis. I, I, I want to have a peace of mind. Okay. I don't want to feel myself guilty. So I will give an antibiotic rather than uh, feeling myself guilty that I would have missed an opportunity and uh, fear that the patient might come back with an endocarditis. OK. So this is a question that is open to everybody. And Pranit, if you want to answer, you can answer, or anybody else can answer. So we are talking about one of the reasons why uh, the guideline or the societies were compelled to even revisit this thought process in the last 25 years. Because if things were working fine, and if everything is OK, there is no new data, then why unnecessarily to revise guidelines even when there is no new upcoming data. And one of the necessity of why the guidelines needed to be revised is because if we are not benefiting patients by giving antibiotics, then the whole notion of we are not harming either may not necessarily be correct, particularly when we are talking about so-called a routine implementation of these antibiotics. Now, I do agree to a lot of extent that in the Indian scenario, particularly with everything that we discussed, where these patients, they are exposed, in fact, multiple times exposed to antibiotics, and they may be taking far more antibiotics by themselves than what we are going to give as, an, as a prophylaxis. I remember there was one center who used to give seven antibiotics for a pacemaker implantation. I could never believe myself, but that center was giving seven antibiotics and discharging on five antibiotics on a patient whom they would put a pacemaker implantation and that person's basic rationale was, I don't want a single pacemaker infection. Now, I also don't want a single pacemaker infection, but whether giving seven before and five later, whether that is better than giving one before and one after, that I don't know. Uh, so the whole notion of giving antibiotics uh, is not necessarily risk-free is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but I, I also hear the idea of the place we are working at, which not necessarily is conducive to the basic science. Uh, we talked about our sterility. We talked about our hardware. We talked about our patient mindset. We talked about our own peace of mind. And we talked about the litigation and whatnot. Uh, but even with all of that, is it worth? And that is what we are trying to discuss. Uh, Pranit, I have one question, and then whatever I said, if anybody has any thoughts, please unmute yourself. The whole rationale of doing this is to get your thought process. Pranit, one of my question is, now, mm. there is some sign, there is some data about it, okay? So, 
when we look at the overall uh, antibiogram or microbiological aspect of endocarditis, what started mm. early on with strep viridans, in fact, in 1970s and 80s, I was not there at that time practicing medicine, but what I read from uh, the articles is, at that time, if somebody has infective endocarditis, you can write strep viridans and you will be correct 90% of the time. Mm. Now, things have changed where we are seeing more enterococcus and we are seeing more staphylococcus uh, than mm. more strep viridans. In fact, I can ask you, when was the last time you saw an endocarditis which was strep positive? strep viridans positive. So my question to you is, if we really want to prevent, then the drug of choice in the current era should be vancomycin and not septriaxone or amoxicillin, if we really want to prevent, because the bacterial system has changed altogether. What is your thought right. on that? Yeah, uh, valid thought, Anup. Uh, like, as you rightly said, most of the organisms that we are seeing is uh, the multi-drug resistant kind of a thing or uh, uh, what you already mentioned. Uh, but again, vancomycin is a drug which is uh, something which is more uh, cumbersome to deliver. It has its own uh, issues. So you're not comfortable giving vancomycin because of whatever uh, that you can say, renal failure, its reactions, Redmond syndrome, blah, blah, blah. Cefdriaxone is something which is easily available, not that expensive, easy to administer, available even at a district. So someone who wants to go home, you keep the IV line, send the patient home, ask them to take the antibiotic back home. So ease of availability on those things, that is where it is. And as said, it's more about uh, kind of that uh, peace of mind that uh, or that guilt consciousness where you said that you still did what you can do. Uh, and if uh, still uh, endocarditis occurs, probably it's unfortunate kind of a thing. But uh, really going uh, with this thought process, probably pertinent, but uh, uh, practically speaking, uh, not able to apply it. Okay, all right. Uh, thanks, Praneet. Anybody else has any other thoughts? I will unmute Dr. Sahithi. Dr. Sahithi, you have a question, but before that, uh, if you could just share your thoughts on the discussion that is happening and then you can put on your question. I have unmuted you, Dr. Sahiti. Yes, sir. Good evening, sir. Actually, I have one doubt. The patients with uh, who is suppressive immunity conditions along with valued heart diseases, does we have to give any infective endocarditis prophylaxis? Hello? Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Sahith, uh, before sir. I let you go, I heard your question. Yes, we'll, we'll address your question. Okay, uh, sir. Before I let you go, I want to know your thoughts on immunocompetent patient. Immunocompetent patient, valvular heart disease, let's say MVP. Uh, do you recommend giving antibiotics to these patients? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, do, do you have this concern I'm sure you are dealing with a lot of antibiotics. Uh, do you have this concern about antibiotics being misused or giving too many of them with no documented benefit? Yeah, if we give too many of antibiotics, there is a chance of adverse drug reactions also, sir. Okay, all right. Uh, Pranit, could you uh, address her question? Her question is particularly about immunocompromised patients uh, getting endocarditis prophylaxis, like. 
we discussed so far that most of us have a very low threshold of giving prophylaxis uh, for these patients. Does it really change if a patient is uh, immunocompromised? Uh, not much, but uh, patients who are immunocompromised, you will be more favoring uh, to give uh, uh, antibiotics or an endocarditis prophylaxis uh, for them because you believe they are uh, more, uh, more at risk of any infection, so is endocarditis. So giving endocarditis, you have much lower threshold than giving antibiotics. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, it's 8.32. We are past our time. Uh, anybody else has got any questions, comments, or thoughts about this particular topic that we are discussing? I will tell you my thought process. I am in line with all of you. The only thing which I which I am not doing is I am not giving antibiotics in pre-operative angiogram patients. I never thought of giving. And after discussing this, I may have to revisit my thought. I'm young enough that I can learn new things. So uh, I have to revisit that thought and see if there is any rationale of adding that, which I'm committing right now that I have not been doing so far. Uh, it only makes sense to me that if we are giving antibiotics for, let's say, dental manipulation, then we probably should be giving antibiotics even for invasive angiogram. Uh, although none of the guidelines, even early 2000s guidelines, never recommended giving an, giving antibiotics in angiogram cases. Uh, so that is my thought on it. Anybody else has got any other ideas or any other thoughts? Uh, if not, yeah, Pranith, you have your hands raised. Is there anything that you want to add? Yeah, so uh, none of uh, the participants at least uh, discussed about the role of uh, oral antibiotics. And so I believe everyone is in agreement uh, to give uh, IV antibiotics alone. And probably oral antibiotics also don't have uh, much of a role in, in endocarditis prophylaxis. If I, that's what I believe. Yeah, so, you know, truly speaking, again, if we are going outside of the guidelines, then see guidelines don't mention IV antibiotic superiority over oral antibiotics. So we really don't know that aspect. So I think it all boils down to comfort level. And what you said is that, you know, IV works better because you know you have given it. Uh, I remember uh, in emergency when patients come who need steroids, we all talk about IV versus oral steroid, realizing that the time of onset for both are the same, but still you choose IV because you know you have given it versus oral you take, God knows what happens in the stomach, patient may vomit later on, uh, you have no idea where the drug went, where it did not. So IV will have a rationale more of uh, related to, again, that peace of mind so-called or the surety rather than the efficacy. I, I particularly don't believe that IV will be any additional benefit uh, at, a, at a molecular level. Um, that's just but that's just my impression but but as i said i would still iv because of because of that assurity um, okay uh, dr shinivas akula your final comments and you joined us for the first time in this session it's kind of a different format that we have where we just have a casual discussion rather than a formal presentation what is your thought yeah. process about this format do you think it it adds a different value uh, if you could give us some constructive criticism about this kind of format. Yeah, this is really good. I appreciate the efforts behind this, both uh, you and Dr. Pranit. Uh, so we were talking about hospital setups only. I have one thing uh, to tell you. 
see definitely in a clinical practice where outside all the dental clinics are small areas where they don't have emergency setups also some people don't even have an emergency uh, kit also so those areas it is really difficult to manage with iv antibiotics there there won't be any trainers to uh, put an intracath or anything so most of the places i know out of 100 let me say 95 to 97 places will give oral antibiotics only and we have cases uh coming into our hospital or er having fever for four days five days post extraction and all so uh so between choosing between uh, iv and oral i don't know where to where will we stand sir when we do give oral antibiotic what is the drug of choice that you guys are using or in the peripheries what do you see being used 2 grams 2 grams amoxicillin 2 grams amoxicillin so that is the pretty standard uh, yes. drug choice oh, yes. uh, that yes. uh, the guidelines have recommended yes doctor Dr. Chandramukhi, if I if I could get your final comment uh, about the session and about the topic, anything you want to add, and then we'll have Pranit close the session. Dr. Chandramukhi. Yeah, this was a uh, like very informative session, and we had uh, uh, some doubts which got cleared off. I have one more doubt that in uh, in patients who are receiving higher antibiotics for any other infection like Magnex Fort or Imipenem, Meropenem. So in these cases, if the patient is going for any uh invasive diagnostic procedure or any other procedure so what will be the infective endocarditis prophylaxis in these cases as already you have mentioned that we are not very sure like because of the uh, chain of the spectrum of the etiological agents of infective endocarditis so whether in such patients do we need to give uh, like ceftriaxone or any antibiotic to be given at all before the procedure because they are already receiving higher antibiotics so how should we go about uh, these patients who are already receiving higher antibiotics and That, one more thing like uh, uh, you were discussing about the patients uh, uh, to receive infective endocarditis prophylaxis before diagnostic angiogram because we will be doing uh, most of the echoes for patients who are having infective endocarditis i myself have seen two cases like after the ptca and even after the angiogram who was have one patient was having aortic stenosis and who got infective endocarditis of the aortic valve and later he has to get operated for infective endocarditis of the aortic valve and one more case had infective endocarditis after the angiogram so when we see such cases and one more case i had seen that after uh, root canal treatment this patient native valve patient uh, the mitral valve uh, prolapse with mr this patient also had infective endocarditis after the dental procedure so when we come across such procedures even if these procedures or there are there is no like uh, mention of these uh, situations in the guidelines but still we prefer to give infective endocarditis prophylaxis in these uh, procedures also perfect thank you so much ma'am uh, truly speaking i don't know the answer to your question i'm going to ask somebody let's say dr shrinivas raju if you could just share your thoughts patient already getting meropenem requires some invasive procedure dr shrinivas uh, i think okay uh, if you could could you answer this question how would you approach this case i probably won't give him uh, give the patient another uh, dose of uh, antibiotic because already the blood levels of antibiotics are 
already there and uh, those are high end antibiotics so i would uh, continue them uh, the same antibiotic which is going no additional dose of uh, antibiotic for them that is uh, my thought process yeah so the idea is very simple you are you are trying to cover for staph strep uh, staph strep and enterococcus and if the patient is already on high guns which will cover these of course they will not cover MRSA, but then we are not targeting MRSA. uh it should be okay but uh, if there is high index of suspicion for MRSA, then you will have to give vancomycin and that is the thought process that i was questioning earlier that if we have to prevent that might well prevent with a drug that we know will actually work uh, we are we are well beyond time so i'm going to close here pranit your final comments on this and then we'll close the session yeah so uh, it was a good uh, session uh, for me uh, this is at least uh, one area where uh, most of us are not uh, comfortable following the guidelines and we have our own uh, thought process and practice patterns uh, which and and i'm i'm glad uh, most of them are in the same agreement but uh, it probably takes some time for the thought process to change or the practice practice to change to adopt the new guidelines and reducing the uh, indications or the usage of antibiotics because we are equally worried about the antibiotic resistance and all uh, but as said probably in discussion with the uh, the surgeon or like a dentist or the person who is operating the procedure knowing what exactly they are doing some of them were uh, enlightened like uh, the dental procedures uh, i am not aware like what uh, dr sinvas have uh, said these are the procedures and what they do and what they don't do if we know exactly paying more attention to what procedure is done and whether there is any break of that endothelium we can be more comfortable or avoid antibiotics in some situations and uh, probably be um, reducing the usage of antibiotics this is what i could think of and uh, i thank each and everyone for their uh, uh, comments and their thought process. It was indeed a good discussion. Thank you, Praneet, and thank you all for attending today's session. To the attendees, particularly those joining us for the first time, we would like to get your feedback for the session. If you found the session worthwhile, may we request you to share it amongst your colleagues, since the general motive is thought sharing with as many people as possible. Uh, as I mentioned before, the huddle is hosted every Wednesday at 7.30. So the link to join the huddle in the future is the same. So you can use the same link for the future session as well. All the huddle sessions are recorded, which means I have the audio recording with me. I can I can share it with you if you just shoot me an email. They are also available on podcast on YouTube. You can just search the weekly huddle and you will get uh, uh, the respective links. Uh, so that also you can subscribe to or just download from the web. I thank you again for your time participating in the discussion. Thank you particularly Dr. Shiriva Sakira for joining. Good night, all of you, and see you again next week. Thank you all. Good night. Thank you.